All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to our afternoon session. I'm Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute and managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. I am pleased to present this panel on federalism and government structure with three experts on three cases that will have some of the farthest reaching effects, I think. Uh, one case, Murphy v. NCAA, is already being cited continuously in the sanctuary city cases that are winding their way through the courts. Another case, South Dakota v. Wayfair, uh, will affect our pocketbooks in the form of interstate taxation, of, inter of internet commerce. And finally, Lucia v. SEC dealt with the important question of who are officers under the United States for the purposes of appointments. So to discuss this first, I'm going to introduce our speakers, speakers briefly. Uh, uh, their extended bios are in your materials. Uh, we have Mark Bernovich to discuss Murphy v. NCAA. He was inaugurated as Arizona's Attorney General in 2015. He previously served as Director of the Arizona Department of Gaming as an Assistant U.S. Attorney for the District of Arizona and as an Assistant Attorney General with the state. Mark? <clears throat> Thank you very much. That really was a brief introduction. I, uh, I'll tell you, you did fail to mention that I was the uh, former director of the Goldwater Institute Center for Constitutional Government. So uh, that might be an important thing to mention in front of these folks. So uh, I, uh, it's in their pack. It's not just the government. Yes, I've, I've worked uh, at other places as well. I do, I do want to thank you. I, do, I am reminded uh, with that short introduction that uh, I had the honor and the, the good fortune of knowing Justice Scalia before he passed away. And um, I was introducing him at an event and I asked Justice Scalia, you know, how he wanted me to introduce him. And, uh, you know, he's done all these amazing things I'm sure everyone in this, this room knows about. And you know, his work on the bench and the appellate bench, his law school writings, everything he's done, legacy of clerks. And so he said to me, um, he's like, Mark, that's uh, bad Justice Scalia imitation, but he's like, he goes, uh, have you ever heard the president of the United States introduced? And I was like, yeah, why? And he's like, he goes, see, when they introduce the president, they just say, here he is, the president of the United States. Because I will tell you, the more important your job, the shorter the introduction. So, <laughs> so when you introduce me, just say, here he is, Justice Scalia. So uh, that's what I did. But uh, so thank you for the short introduction. I appreciate that. Uh, I, uh, and I apologize. I was running a little late. There was a... Um, this thing, I'm from Arizona, with the stuff that comes out of the sky that's wet, uh, we're not used to that, but it seems to slow everything down. Um, but anyway, um, I am, I'm glad to be uh, talking a little bit about um, uh, Christie versus NCAA, now it's Murphy versus NCAA, um, which is something that I, I followed many, many years. As you heard, I was a, a federal prosecutor. I prosecuted gambling crimes. Um, I was also the director of the State Department of Gaming. Uh, so uh, I, I know a lot about gambling. In fact, actually, four years ago when I ran for attorney general, I'd never run for office before, and the, the largest paper in the state had endorsed my opponent, and and they they really kind of over, went overboard with her background and experience, even though she'd only actually tried one case in her life and never actually prosecuted a case. It described her with all these glowing terms, and literally the sentence about me said, and Brnovich has a background in gambling. And so um, <laughs> I... Uh, I used to have, so for the next two weeks, I would go out and I'd speak and I'd tell people, I'm not a car dealer, I'm not a craps dealer. Um, and uh, the other thing that I think is important to note here today, I've, I have several rules, uh, kind of uh, my commandments for living, and, and you know, I'm sure what, 
some of you are familiar with some of these. Uh, the first is obviously never get in a uh, ground war in Asia, right? That's the first commandment in life. Um, the second one is never gamble with anyone who has a city as a nickname. So Miami Rick, Cincinnati kids stay away from. But my third one was never be on a panel with law professors. And so I, uh, I worry that uh, hopefully I don't get overwhelmed by their intellect. But uh, anyway, just, just to talk about this case for a little bit. Uh, Gambling has a, has a strange or a rich history, depending on one's perspective, in this country. Um, you know, Ben Franklin ran the Philadelphia Lottery. Uh, the Continental Army was financed through various lotteries. There are buildings, you know, in, in Massachusetts at Harvard that were financed through lotteries. Uh, but as, as a country, over the centuries, um, even over time, I mean, you know, going back to ancient Greek mythology, you know, it was said that, you know, Poseidon and Hades and... Um, not ne yeah, Neptune, uh, the gambled for who would control the heavens, earth, and the seas uh, by gambling, um, who would get control of those. And so throughout sacred texts, even you know Old Testament, New Testament, there's references to gambling. So it's something that's always been around, and we've had a little bit of a love-hate relationship. And part of that is because of, I would submit to you that, that historically, gambling has, uh, because it's a cash-intensive industry and there's social costs associated with it, where people will tolerate a certain amount of it or society will tolerate a, lot, a certain amount of it, and then you end up with some big scandal or social cost, and then there's a backlash, and then people don't want it around anymore. And that's important to note, because I think in the context, context even the Murphy case, is that societal attitudes to change have changed dramatically regarding gambling. And I think that the court understands that, the Supreme Court understands that, and anytime the court makes any decision, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, it happens in a certain social context. So when the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, Act was passed in 1992, we were just starting to enter this kind of current wave of this gambling expansion. Um, in New Hampshire in 1954, a state senator had proposed the first modern lottery um, to help finance public schools in New Hampshire, and he had to try for 10 years before it was finally passed in 64. And then in 67, New York went with the lottery, and then we started to have this, this explosion. You had the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act in the late 80s, which led to tribal casinos throughout this country. And then as, as this explosion happened, a reaction from Congress was they wanted to stop or minimize the amount of gambling on sports. So they passed the Professional Amateur PASPA, we'll just call it PASPA, a Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, um, which was designed to limit gambling. It did grandfather in certain states like Nevada and Oregon and Montana, um, but states like New Jersey were not part of, um, or they did not allow sports gambling at the time. You may recall New Jersey ended up getting Atlantic City in the 1970s, voters approved that, and they, their gambling or you know their casinos really kicked off in the late 70s and, and um, into the 80s, and so at that time, sports gambling was not occurring in New Jersey. Um, New Jersey, though, eventually did pass a constitutional amendment in 2011 uh, to allow sports gambling. The case was challenged. It did not go up to the Supreme Court, and um, the courts, the, the appellate court, had upheld the ban. Um, but then New Jersey, the legislature, passed another um, act to allow sports gambling in 2014, and that case eventually did make it up to the Supreme Court. And the reason why I think that's, that case is so important is because not only has it revived or it's continued this current interest in gambling um, that we all seem to have, and, and I will tell you there's a lot of elected officials that are especially enamored with gambling, and that's because uh, it's an easy way to tax or you know, get tax collection revenue for the government without directly taxing people. So it was, it was a 7-2 decision 
um, in, in Murphy, and Justice Alito wrote the opinion, and the focus of that opinion was on the um, anti-authorization provision and the anti-commandeering provisions, um, or the principle, where, which expressed a fundamental constitutional um, decision where that unless Congress specifically grants um, uh, some sort of, I'm sorry, let me take it back, unless Congress specifically orders a state, or if Congress does order a state to do something or not to do something, um, it can't do that to the states because it's essentially commandeering, commandeering the, the state resources. And this was a principle that we saw first enunciated or that, that, that has come up in prior cases, including New York versus United States. Some of you may remember that's the case dealing with radioactive waste when Congress attempted to uh, make sure that states um, put, uh, put obligations on the states related to nuclear, nuclear waste to disposal. And in that case, the court said you cannot force state agents or the states to do something um, or take title of radioactive waste. And five years later, in the Prince case, you saw um, a case that um, involved whether the federal government could impose or tell the states that they had to do background checks on individual purchasing firearms. In that case, once again, using this anti-commandeering principle, the Supreme Court said that you cannot force state officials uh, to do something. Um, you cannot basically commandeer the resources of the states to, to do something the federal government wants to be done. Now, in Murphy, one of the interesting things about that case um, is Justice Alito, in his opinion, talked about and emphasized the fact that these principles and the power in the Constitution, um, when Congress does act, it confers on Congress the power to act over individuals, not over to act in the states. And so the other thing is that Justice Alito noted is that um, this notion about whether this, that Congress is telling states they can't do something, like in the Murphy case where they said you can't pass laws allowing gambling, or whether they affirmatively did something where they were commandeering state resources, like in the Prince case where they said you have to do background checks, uh, Justice Alito basically said it's a distinction without difference. It doesn't matter. The state, the, uh, the Congress cannot order the states to um, do something with those state resources. And as Justice Alito said, that, uh, the, that if passable was constitutional, it would, quote, represent the exercise of a power conferred by Congress by the Constitution, um, which it does not. It, and PASPA, it, the anti-commandeering clause must be read as something that regulates, quote, unquote, private actors. And so um, it, it was, it's a very important principle. And we've already seen already what the ramifications of Murphy may or may not be uh, in, in the upcoming you know, next few years. Now, on the one hand, I as I said, I started talking about the history of gambling. I, I would say to you that um, I think because societal attitudes have changed, um, I think maybe you know, some folks have thought like, well, this is silly. Why does Nevada you know, get to do sports gambling but the other states don't? How can Congress prohibit that? And then you know, they use that anti-commandeering principle. They didn't use the Commerce Clause or any other um, uh, vehicles to strike that down. But the court was pretty much unanimous in saying that you cannot commandeer those state resources. As a result of that case, we've already seen some ramifications, um, as you noted, in the area regarding uh, sanctuary cities. We know that recently um, in the city of Philadelphia v. Sessions, um, a Pennsylvania district court had held that um, 1373 um, of the federal law dealing with the prohibition on local governments, uh, or states, excuse me, states not prohibiting local governments from cooperating with INS, um, the Pennsylvania court had basically said that 
because of that anti-commandeering, anti-commandeering, sorry, I, I don't even like the Commodores as a group. Like, I don't know why I keep saying that, but um, commandeering. So if I say Commodore, I meant commandeering. Um, that, that that principle is applicable. And therefore, just like in Murphy, this, the federal government cannot tell or cannot tell local law enforcement or state law enforcement officials um, not only what they have to do, but what they can't tell them what they can't do. Um, and we also have seen recently in U.S. v. California very similar analysis by a California district court dealing with the same issue uh, regarding immigration practices and whether indeed um, the federal government can stop or require states not to help with law enforcement. Now, I, I will tell you that um, these cases are still winding their way through the system, and it will be interesting to see what happens because I do think that that immigration enforcement is a little bit different than, let's say, you know, sports gambling, especially in the sense that Arizona had a case a few years back um, dealing with our provisions, dealing with local and state officials working to enforce um, or dealing with law, um, federal immigration laws. And in that case, the Supreme Court talked about the field being preempted by the federal government, that when it came to issues like immigration, this is something where the, the preemption was so great that the states really had no role. And so I don't know if that type of analysis, because it deals with immigration, will end up playing out in these cases as they make it up to the, the uh, US Supreme Court. Uh, we also know that there's approximately about 110 statutes dealing with um, that limit sorry about this, uh, limit uh, taxing authority of the states. And so you have Congress passing laws telling states, once again, that they can't tax certain things. And I think that one of you is going to be talking about that, so I will not steal your thunder because you probably know more about it than I do. But the question is, is does this anti-commandeering principle apply in those areas as well? And so I, I think that a lot of these questions we resolved. It does seem to me at first blush, and you know, I'm, I, that... Um, Mur uh, Murphy is a pretty broad decision. This notion of you know, anti-commandeering, it doesn't matter whether it's affirmative or negative, that we're going to limit the ability of Congress to tell states what they can and can't do, um, does seem very broad at first blush because it does implicate other areas of the law, like immigration, like taxation. Um, so, so I think that at some point we'll probably see the court having to you know, either redefine or maybe even limit that principle. Um, at the same time, I think we all recognize, um, and I think this may be what Justice Alito was getting at, is that the federalism, these, these traditional notions of federalism are all about preserving individual liberty. And one of the things that when I'm out talking and sometimes I talk to people, you know, it's always um, important to remind folks that it's the federal government didn't create the states, but the states created the federal government. And I know everyone in this room, I'm sure, appreciates the fact that when the framers set up our Constitution, uh, when we talk about checks and balances, or sometimes the media talks about checks and balances, you know, many times people think of it in traditional terms of, you know, the legislative being a check on the executive and the executive being a check on the judiciary. And there's that triangle you learned in, you know, elementary or high school where they all check on each other. Uh, but the reality is, is the framers of our Constitution fully expected to be the states to be a check on the federal government. And that this dual, the notion that we would preserve liberty by limiting, by limiting the federal government's powers and authority, um, and at the same time having states zealously guard the rights of their citizen, that was part of the system of the checks and balances. And why I think that um, Murphy is intriguing on a, on a lot of levels. Because if it truly does restore this balance or helps push back against uh, Congress and its abilities to maybe micromanage the state, um, it, it really, I think, will be a great victory for individual liberty. 
And, and I do think, I also think that when you, when you think about this in, in macro terms, it was, you know, I think it was James Madison that talked about the fact that rights and powers are um, just different sides of the same coin. And so, you know, and, and once again, I'm sure everyone knows this, is that when the debate was going on over whether to incorporate or include a Bill of Rights in our Constitution, you know, there was a lot of folks that were very skeptical of that because they said, you don't need to include rights because the power of the federal government is supposed to be limited. And so I know that there's a lot of folks, a lot of folks, um, uh, libertarians, conservatives, people that believe in traditional notion of federalism have looked at issues like the Commerce Clause and thought, well, wait a minute, Commerce Clause jurisprudence has gone way beyond what the framers of our Constitution wanted. And so whether it's going back to Wickard v. Filburn or recent cases like Raich, there was a lot of people that were concerned that courts were giving too much leeway to Congress. And so I do think that is one of the things about Murphy, where it may end up being something that, that's another vehicle now where people that truly believe in, in traditional notions of federalism, truly want uh, believe in individual liberty, they now have another vehicle, another case out there that they can use to make their argument and maybe not rely so much on issues um, like Commerce Clause or some of the other jurisprudence cases, some of the other cases. So thank you very much, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, coming next will be Joseph Bishop Hinchman, the Executive Vice President at the Tax Foundation, where he analyzes state tax trends, constitutional issues, and tax law developments. He holds a law degree from George Washington University and a bachelor's in political science from California, Berkeley. On a personal note, he knows more about tax law than um, I think anyone on the planet. One time on Facebook, I found out that ransom payments are tax deductible, just so <laughs> everyone knows this. And I put on Facebook, I said, hey, Joe Hinchman, I bet you've never heard that ransom payments are tax deductible. And within 10 seconds, he came back and commented the exact section of the tax code uh, that <laughs> makes ransom payments tax deductible. So, Joe? <laughs> yes, I'm everybody's favorite guest at a cocktail party. So. Uh, thank you, and thank you to the Cato Institute for the honor of being a part of this day. Um, we're gonna make this a little interactive. Raise your hand if you've ever bought anything online. <laughs> all right, so. Raise your hand if you hadn't. All right, well, we've got a couple, all right. Uh, currently, sometimes you pay sales tax when you buy things online, and sometimes you don't, and you're about to learn why. Uh, the Commerce Clause, you forgot to boo and hiss. The Commerce Clause, <laughs> yeah, is a dirty word among us libertarians. But the Commerce Clause I'm speaking about today is not the evil, bad interstate Commerce Clause, the one that's allowed the federal government to ban even intrastate non-commerce, but the good interstate Commerce Clause, the one that bans state laws that discriminate against or unduly burden interstate commerce. It first emerged in the case of Gibbons v. Ogden in 1824 when who else, New Jersey and New York's, were squabbling about who got to monopolize ferry traffic between them. Chief Justice Marshall ruled, neither of you. The Constitution's Commerce Clause gives, gives, over the, gives the power over interstate commerce to the federal government, even when the feds have done nothing. So states cannot harm it, cannot harm it, and free trade between New Jersey and New York proceeded. I should note that the dormant Commerce Clause is not universally accepted in conservative libertarian legal circles. While Justices Alito and, while Justice Alito and former Justice Kennedy are champions of the Commerce Clause, Justices Scalia and Thomas were and are not. Their view is the Commerce Clause says Congress shall, and if Congress has not shalled, 
then the states can do whatever they want. They correctly observe that dormant commerce clause analysis looks more like policy analysis than judicial analysis. So Scalia and Thomas were often automatic votes to sustain even the craziest state tax laws, along with Justin Ginsburg, who just supports crazy state tax laws. Uh, and I have to tell you, it's not fun going into every Supreme Court case three votes down. Uh, and it does look like Justice Gorsuch has taken up Justice Scalia's view on this. So anyways, for a long time after Givens v. Ogden, the rule was states cannot tax interstate commerce at all. And that worked well enough when interstate commerce was properly defined and was a tiny portion of our economy. But it came, became increasingly unworkable as we entered the 20th century and increasing numbers of jobs, companies, transactions, and people crossed state lines frequently and routinely. In the 1930s and the 1940s, the Supreme Court greatly expanded the definition of interstate commerce to include nearly everything. The flip side of that is that a total prohibition of state, of state taxation of interstate commerce consistently applied under that definition would deprive states, counties, and cities of all tax revenue, except for maybe property taxes. Now, maybe that's not so bad, but it's not the path that we took. Instead, the Supreme Court had to modify its total prohibition to allow states to tax interstate commerce in certain circumstances. If you want to skip ahead to the end and get the technical answer, it's on page 299 and footnote 116 of the book that was handed out today. But the gist of it is that a tax has to be non-surprising, non-burdensome, and non-discriminatory. Let me take those in reverse order. First, non-discriminatory. That means a tax on an activity out of state should be no more than the tax on identical activity in state. States love trying to get around this, taxing outsiders to benefit voters, and the Supreme Court deserves full credit for slapping this down almost every time. I actually have a pillow in my office that says this rule. It's really important. It's my bread and butter stopping discriminatory state taxation. Taxfoundation.org slash donate. Uh, Non-burdensome means the state enactment is so costly so complex and so damaging that it's really just a tariff. Everybody, anybody heard of tariffs lately? <laughs> right. With the purpose of banning imports to benefit in-state producers. That's a no-no, and you'll get even Justice Thomas angry at you. Uh, the hard part for lawyers like me is finding that line between normal, everyday, ordinary tax compliance and burdensome, tariff-like, unconstitutional tax compliance. It's a fun job. Non-surprising, and that's where this year's decision comes in, means whoever you're taxing has to have some kind of connection, some kind of nexus with the state. To me, that sounds an awful like, lot like due process, that class I had first year, where when can you be sued in a jurisdiction? Do you have enough minimum context? Are you purposefully availing? That stuff. It sounded like due process to just about every constitutional scholar who's taken a look at the question. But in 1967, the Supreme Court looked at it and said, that's not a due process question. That's a commerce clause question. The case involved a mail order company uh, uh, that sent catalogs and sold stuff through the mail to people in Illinois. Uh, the case was called Bellis Hess. Uh, and they said, no, nexus is a separate test under the commerce clause and a separate standard. The nexus has to be sufficient or substantial. Well, what does that mean? Uh, this they defined as physical presence of the seller inside the state. Now that itself is a difficult term because corporations are never actually physically present. They are metaphysical entities, uh, truly only present in the form of a piece of paper in a filing cabinet, usually in Delaware. Uh, 
their employees and their building and their correspondence and their packages and their advertisements, these things can be physically present, but they're representations or proxies for corporations, not corporations themselves. Now, I once thought physical presence could be a restraint on state governments. A decade of experience dealing with that standard has taught me that it is not. Independent contractors who are non-employees that do certain functions for you who are physically present in a state count as physical presence, courts have ruled. New Jersey, again, that state, seized a truck as it entered the state and demanded back taxes before it allowed it uh, to go on and deliver its goods uh, because even fleeting pres physical presence counts as physical presence. Washington state demanded seven years of taxes from a CEO who flew to SeaTac to visit family because unrelated to business physical presence counts as physical presence. And Massachusetts now says that any website that places cookies on the computers of Massachusetts residents is subject to state taxes because physical presence of electronic ones and zeros counts as physical presence. That physical presence rule was reaffirmed in 1992 in the Quill decision, which also dealt with mail order catalogs. There was some misgiving by justices who didn't think it sounded right, but didn't want to upset expectations and reliance interests. And they reassured themselves that Congress could always pass legislation if they disagreed with it. Side note, that's possible with the Dormant Commerce Clause because it is the only provision of the Constitution where Congress can overrule the court with mere legislation because the text of the Constitution says Congress shall. Justice Scalia really hated that uh, analysis of it. Anyways, in 1992, the court basically asked Congress, hey, can you define a law to define nexus for interstate tax purposes? Another interactive moment. Raise your hand if you think Congress passed such a law. It was a quarter century ago, but you are correct, they did not. And it's too bad because most of the work was already done for them. In the 1960s, a congressman named Edwin Willis, Edwin Willis chaired a commission, the Willis Commission, that gazed into the future and recommended federal thresholds to limit state tax power. How many days can you be in a state before they start demanding state income tax from you? What kind of business can, can you conduct in a state before you start owing business taxes? What's the rightful share of a multi-state company's profits that one state can subject to its tax? All of these questions that consume my every waking moment today were actually thought about and answered past, back then. Congress just never passed the bill. Uh, unfortunately, was, that report was put on a shelf, and the only thing, place you can find it now is on the Tax Foundation's website. So instead, what happened was 25 years of nothing. Nothing legislatively or judicially. Now, the internet happened, uh, and now essentially everyone who sells anything can sell it anywhere in the world. States kept passing laws trying to tax this activity, and courts kept upholding them, except for the one area of sales taxes on businesses not physically present in the state. And that brings us to Wayfair. Has anyone ever bought anything from Wayfair? A couple of people. I have. Uh, Wayfair is a website where you can buy furniture directly from manufacturers without showrooms or salespeople or markups, and they proverbially pass the savings on to you. They made $4.7 billion last year, selling into every state, advertising in every state, directing their commerce, and purposely availing themselves of the market in every state. They meet the due process minimum context threshold under current doctrine. And by the way, if you, think, if you want an argument that that doctrine is wrong, uh, read Cato's very good brief in this case. Uh, but the direct issue in Wayfair was whether the Commerce Clause restrained South Dakota from collecting sales tax from Wayfair on Wayfair sales to South Dakota residents. Now, it's not discriminatory. The exact same tax is collected by South Dakota businesses on their sales to South Dakota residents. It's not burdensome. South Dakota actually has a pretty easy to comply with sales tax system. Just a couple of rates, a pretty broad base that's uniform across the state, and the state even provides lookup and, and definition software, and there's centralized collections, so you only have to deal with one entity in the state. 
South Dakota is also one of 22 states that's a member of a multi-state compact, the Streamline Sales Tax Governing Board, to make interst interstate sales tax collection a one-stop shop. So the Wayfair case came down to, is it not surprising? Does, the Wayfair, does Wayfair have a minimum level of activity to, to have to collect South Dakota sales tax? Is there sufficient nexus? There is, the Supreme Court ruled. In a 5-4 decision, but not that 5-4, it's a different 5-4, uh, they said nexus is not physical presence. Now it's worth noting the court was actually nine to zero on the physical presence rule, with even the dissenters saying Bellis Hess was wrongly decided. The four dissenters' beef was that Congress should fix this, not the court. All right, so if nexus is not physical presence, then what is? Here's where I was worried, and where many others were worried too. But luckily, Justice Kennedy, who wrote what turned out to be his last ever majority opinion, left us with some guidance that we have called the Wayfair Checklist. The tax cannot be applied to minimal fleeting activity. South Dakota only applies their tax if you sell at least $100,000 a year or 200 transactions into their state. And they said that sounded right. The tax can't be retroactive. Compliance has to be easy with simplified rates and uniform definitions. If there are lots of taxes in a state, the state has to provide one place to pay them all and access to software to look up that information. It can't be discriminatory, of course, and the taxpayer has to have enough activities in the state to meet due process minimums. Today, Constitution Day, honors the day in 1787 when they sent the Constitution to the states for action. You may recall, if you were there, that our independence was in 1776. With that 11-year period, and a, a, that 11-year interim, a period of interstate squabbling, interstate tariffs, and interstate trade wars. One of the big reasons James Madison and others agitated to call the Constitutional Convention was to give the federal government the power to restrain state tax overreaching. One of the legacies of that experience is the Dormant Commerce Clause. States cannot discriminate against or unduly burden interstate commerce, even interstate commerce that has fleeting physical presence, unrelated physical presence, or electronic physical presence. I'm still convincing fellow libertarians and conservatives that this standard, aside from being constitutionally rooted, will be better for individual liberty and state tax restraint than the now overruled physical presence standard ever was. There's been renewed interest in three federal proposals, the Business Activity Tax Simplification Act, the Mobile Workforce Act, and the Digital Goods Tax Simplification Act. All three of these bills abandon physical presence as not protective enough and substitute federal minimum standards for when states can tax those, those items. They're sorely needed. And I will say from personal experience, since Wayfair came down, that this standard is restraining state action on sales taxes, which were out of control under the physical presence standard. Uh, at our website, we've got a map of the current state developments on this. 32 states have already acted since this decision came down in June uh, and set dates for the beginning of collection of online sales taxes. I admit this is no idle debate. Government laws and regulations apply and services are provided to those who reside in inv invisible lines we draw on the ground. And those outside their lines don't get to benefit from those services. That's just the way governments are set up. Wayfair may be remembered as the first, first case where the court struggled to pair that geographic definition of government with an increasingly app-based, cloud-based, borderless, org-chartless, instantaneous, everywhere-and-nowhere economy. Will property taxes become more voluntary as mobility and technology mean people can do their job while living anywhere? Will business taxes become more voluntary as they exist only in the cloud? Will payroll taxes become harder to collect if everyone is their own app-based boss? If so, the last tax left standing may be the sales tax, the consumption tax. People will always have to buy stuff, and because of Wayfair, that tax will be paid in that home state that provides services to the buyer. 
That's not such a bad thing. Economists say consumption taxes are the least destructive tax to economic growth and improvements to, the standard, improvements to standards of living. It may be a long way off. Most people, st most, for the most part, most people work where they live, but only in their, uh, buy only in their state and sell only where they can be. But it's a testament to our Constitution's framers that their solutions to their problems remain relevant to us today. Wayfair reaffirmed that the Dormant Commerce Clause is a thing. That's good news. And it reaffirmed that its purpose is to, uh, to ensure a free trade zone within the United States. That's also good news. Wayfair also reaffirmed that parochial state interests do not get to burden interstate commerce. And that's why James Madison is now making you pay sales tax on the stuff you buy online. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you, Joe. Next up, we'll have Jennifer L. Mascott, an assistant professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. She is a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States and a former law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Jennifer? So thank you so much to the Cato Institute for hosting the event today and inviting me to participate. I'm gonna be talking about the court's decision in June in Lucia versus Securities and Exchange Commission. That's a case involving the selection process that the Securities and Exchange Commission have been using to hire its administrative law judges. So administrative law judges preside over formal adjudication, formal hearings within agencies. Formal adjudication in agencies in many ways looks a little bit like you'd think a federal trial might look like with the presentation of evidence, witnesses, the opportunity to cross-examine. Um, and the administrative law judges often reach the initial decision in adjudicative manners, matters within agencies. In this particular case, an SEC ALJ imposed a $300,000 civil penalty on Mr. Lucia and imposed a lifetime bar on Mr. Lucia continuing to practice in his profession in the securities industry. Um, these sanctions were imposed based on charges that Mr. Lucia had given some misleading information when he was explaining a retirement investment plan. So, you know, if we're in the Article III court system, obviously federal judges would be appointed by the president with Senate consent. But the administrative law judges within the SEC, in contrast, had been selected at the time by um, Securities and Exchange Commission staff. And so the question ultimately in this case was really whether the Constitution has some kind of restraint or something to say about how administrative law judges need to be selected. So the relevant provisions, the Appointments Clause, obviously in Article II, um, which basically says that for those who are officers of the United States, officials who come under that categorization, they can only be selected in one of four ways, either, either by the president with Senate consent, the president alone, a department head, which in this case would be the Securities and Exchange commissioners themselves or a court of law. Um, and the challenge in this litigation is that over the years, in contrast to a lot of other provisions in the Constitution that have been interpreted quite extensively by the Supreme Court, there actually was very, comparatively very little case law going into Lucia versus SEC from the Supreme Court on who qualifies as an officer of the United States. <clears throat> The court had said in 1976 in Buckley versus Vallejo that officers of the United States have significant authority. Um, and that had been in a case where the court had found that the FEC commissioners, quite high level officials, were officers of the United States. 
Then the court, 15 years later in 1991, in a case called Freitag versus Commissioner, had concluded that special trial judges in the tax court were officers of the United States. And so the court had said those individuals have discretion, they handle important matters, they preside over uh, proceedings that look a little bit like trials, take evidence, their positions are established by statute, and so they look important enough to be officers of the United States. So over the years, the lower courts had to carry out the standard and sometimes would have litigants come and challenge the um, appointments clause status of various officials. And you know, you can see why over the years, um, I think one reason the SEC has been challenged is with recent lit, uh, legislation such as the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, the SEC has um, jurisdiction over you know, more and more significant uh, matters, able to impose more and more significant penalties. And so parties over the years are questioning what is the um, what is the authority that the SEC has to do this? And one of the challenges that has been raised is um, the appointments clause challenges. So as early as 2000, the DC Circuit had had to rule on whether administrative law judges in another agency, in that case the FDIC, were officers of the United States. The DC Circuit tried to read a lot into, um, a lot of language in the Freitag versus Commissioner 1991 opinion from the Supreme Court, and had basically said, yes, the administrative law judges look a lot like these special trial judge officers, but the Supreme Court had had kind of an alternative passage in the Freitag case where it said, even if the special trial judges don't do things that are as important as we think they do, they reach final decisions in a small class of cases, and so because of that, we know for sure they're officers of the United States. And so the D.C. Circuit in a 2000 decision um, <clears throat> written by Judge Williams said, look, the administrative law judges don't reach final decisions for their agencies. They're not officers of the United States. Then the D.C. Circuit reaffirmed that interpretation in, um, in the Lucia litigation dealing with the SEC ALJs in August of 2016. A few months later, because there have been so many challenges brought to um, proceedings by the SEC, the Tenth Circuit had an opportunity to rule on the same question, found that the SEC ALJs are not officers, said the D.C. Circuit's been reading too much into the Supreme Court's opinions, making it too hard for somebody to qualify as an officer. It's an important accountability mechanism in the appointments clause. And so we think the ALJs are officers and that they were unconstitutionally selected in this case. As you might know, if you followed the case around, around town, um, the D.C. Circuit then um, heard an en banc, had en banc reconsideration in the Lucia litigation, split 5-5. Um, the petitioner, Mr. Lucia, um, brought his case to the Supreme Court. And in the meantime, the government decided, um, now under leadership by um, Solicitor General Francisco and the, and the Trump administration, that it was going to hold the position now that the ALJs, in fact, were officers of the United States and had been selected improperly. So the Chief Justice had to appoint an, an amicus to um, defend the SEC's decision. And the case you know, seemed to have pretty big stakes. It was argued late in the term. I think it was April 23rd when oral argument took place. The decision was reached uh, June 21st. And there were a lot of individuals who filed amicus briefs on both sides of the case. And the reason that people saw the stakes in this case to be so high is because really the core question in the case gets to what is the source of accountability for the structuring of the executive branch. So a lot of the people who were filing briefs saying that it was appropriate for SEC staff to have hired the ALJs were saying that the ALJs ALJs preside over um, 
significant civil penalties, significant matters. In our system, we um, think adjudicators should be impartial, look at Article III judges. It's better for a staff person who's a little bit removed from the political process, who's looking at uh, merit-based selection systems to make the final decision on who these adjudicators are. And so the government's position and Mr. Lucia's position um, and the position of a lot of people in favor of the petitioner was to say, actually, no, here we're dealing with an executive branch position. The administrative law judges are doing executive adjudication. The form of accountability within the executive branch is electoral accountability. The reason is we want transparency, accountability, responsibility in the executive branch. How did the framers of the Constitution think that we were going to have that? It was because the president or a person one step removed from the president department head was going to be picking important officials to um, preside over important matters in the executive branch. And so uh, the stakes seemed pretty high. I filed an amicus brief in the case. Um, actually taking quite a broad position based on um, an extensive study that I had uh, published in the Stanford Law Review on the original meaning of officers of the United States that suggests that in fact, I mean, that this is in fact a critical accountability mechanism in the um, executive branch and that significant 18th century evidence suggests that officers of the United States at the time would have been seen not to cover just this narrow category that we think of them as today, but actually would have covered anybody who was carrying out um, um, a statutory duty. So if Congress or the Constitution said the executive branch had a duty to do something, or were supposed to do something, and you were responsible for carrying that out, the way that you were going to be accountable and, and that we knew that the executive branch was going to be st uh, staffed properly was through, at the end of the day, holding the president or a department head accountable for signing off on your, on your selection. Um, Ultimately, the court, as you know, if you've read the decision, decided really not to wade into and try to decide the crux of accountability for the executive branch and reached a very narrow ruling and found basically um, in, a, in, a, in an opinion joined by six justices written by Justice Kagan that the administrative law judges look so much like the special trial judges in Freitag that maybe one day the court will have to further interpret what significant authority means if you're an officer, but not on the day that it handed down Lucia, and it was just going to find, um, it was just going to narrowly apply the Freitag decision. And so I think that raises um, a couple of questions. Um, one, I think it means probably that um, over the coming years, we're going to continue to see more appointments clause litigation because the court really has not told us how extensively its um, test needs to apply. In fact, the Sixth Circuit just a few weeks ago um, said, yes, we think this. Um, that this definition applies to another category of administrative law judges. But we don't really know from the court's opinion, does it apply to administrative judges who preside over more informal hearings within administrative agencies? What is the standard for people involved in regulation? If you're involved in notice and comment rulemaking, how important does your responsibility have to become before you are an officer of the United States? And so the court was trying to narrowly reach a decision, but, um, but has left a lot of things out, out in the open. Um, the other thing that it did not do is exactly tell the SEC how to resolve this moving forward. Um, it said that in this particular case, Mr. Lucia needed a new hearing by a properly appointed administrative law judge. Um, what the SEC has done in the week since is determine that there are about 200 proceedings that need to be looked at again and that it's going to um, appoint a new decision maker or give, give parties the option to have a new decision maker in all of those cases. Um, 
And it, it, what it has also done is it's, it's done what it's called ratify the appointment of the prior administrative law judges. So the people who were hired by staff, now the commissioners have signed off on their appointments. The Supreme Court actually in Lucia wouldn't even go so far as to say that was constitutional. Um, the SEC has done its own work, I guess, to determine that it is. So it's moving forward. Um, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. The other interesting implication of this case, I think, really comes on the back end with removal. Um, and what happens now if administrative law judges are officers? Does that have something to say with um, how many tenure protections they can have? And actually, because of that concern, Justice Breyer um, joined the court in, his, in the judgment that the appointments in this case were um, unlawful on statutory grounds, but he did not want to find ALJs to be officers because of the Supreme Court's case in 2010, Free Enterprise versus P Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, where the court said in that case, the board members were protected by two layers of tenure protections. The board members themselves had to be fired just for cause. The SEC commissioners have been interpreted to be um, protected by four cause removal protections. And the Supreme Court said that double layer limitation was unconstitutional in that case. It had a footnote saying agency adjudicators may be different, but Justice Breyer, in his um, opinion in Lucia, says he has real doubts about how the free enterprise fund would be applied later on to administrative law judges. And so he didn't want to find them to be officers because they have tenure protections and of course the SEC commissioners have tenure protections and based on how you do your count, they may be um, protected by three or four layers of tenure protections. So I think we might see more um, litigation and more challenges in the future about how um, whether or not ALJs can be uh, protected with tenure. And then the one last thing to note, um, I don't know if you all are aware, the, the, the Trump administration actually has, has um, put forward an executive order to carry out the Lucia decision and has said that it believes the Lucia decision applies to all administrative law judges and all agencies. And even though no parties in the case raised this particular question, I did touch on it a little bit in my brief, but the, the administration has said, the court has noted that um, ALJs have to be appointed by department heads what does that mean for how restricted their selection can be by the merit-based competitive service system? So even if SEC commissioners are making the final decision on their hiring, is it too constraining to say along the, along the way they have to go through a typical uh, merit-based selection system where they take an exam and they're evaluated by the Office of Personnel Management? And the Trump administration said there are real constitutional questions there, and so it has now accepted the um, ALJs from the competitive service. And I think it's right for the Trump administration to have questions there. I talk about it a little bit in, in part four of the Stanford paper and in the Cato article. There's an 1871 attorney general opinion suggesting that Congress establishes offices by law. And so when it establishes offices by law, it may be able to impose some qualifications on who can serve in the office. But if the qualifications are too constraining, such that the department head or the president doesn't have a real choice in the matter, perhaps at that point, um, Congress has gone too far. And so I think actually the executive order has struck a nice balance because it has not thrown merit-based qualifications out completely. It said, we still think objective selection of administrative law judges is important, but we're going to leave more say to the agencies themselves, the departments, about what those criteria have to be, and let the agencies decide how we're going to evaluate that criteria. Um, and so I think it'll be really interesting over the next weeks and months to see how um, both the administration and perhaps Congress, if it decides to step in, carry out the decision. Thank you.
thank you. Professor Mascott, we're going to open it up for questions before, as the microphones are coming down, does anyone on the panel have a question to another panelist or along those lines? No? Professor, oh, sorry. It's okay. Yeah, you're, you're okay. good. Okay. Can you hear me? Um, just out of curiosity, when you were doing, when you wrote the law review article and you did research on this, did you ever have the urge to sing Santa Lucia as you were kept talking about that case? Uh, <laughs> that song in my head every time you said that. So. The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, bring the mic where the microphones are. are they out here? Read them there. Oh, they're, they're coming. Uh, yes, uh, here I will translate while the microphone comes down. <clears throat> Can you bring it up to the front here, please? <clears throat> there, we're here. Thank you. Good panel. Very good panel. Uh, Professor Mascott. I'm sure in your research you've seen the huge debate over the last 10 or 20 years as to what the definition of officer of the United States includes. And in fact, um, in an anonymous writing that's been attributed to John Marshall, for example, in early 1801 during the Jefferson Burr fiasco, uh, John Marshall suggested that uh, members of Congress, such as the Speaker or the, or the pro tem president, are not eligible to succeed to the presidency because they're not officers. Um, so, in your view, does the term officer in the United in the Constitution refer to the same kind of uh, person, or does it vary in definition from different parts of the Constitution? So, I think that's a good question. Is this, yeah, should, is this on? I think that's a good question. Um, it's a little different than the question that I researched, and I can explain what I mean by that. So I researched, so there is a real question. I, I call it kind of a horizontal question about to which branches does the officer of the United States definition apply. I think that one suggestion maybe that it does apply to other branches is the fact that it refers to all other, something like all other officers of the United States not here and otherwise appointed, such and such, which might refer to, for example, the Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader, members of Congress being able to appoint their own officers. I think it's a thorny question. I think it's a question that um, can relate to lots of interesting debates today, including perhaps the Emoluments Clause debate and who's an officer under the United States. Um, Professor Seth Tillman's written a lot on the issue of how all the various officer definitions within the Constitution intersect with each other. I took on a little bit different question in my research, which was the vertical question of how far down into the executive branch, how insignificant can a person's uh, re responsibilities be to qualify as an officer of the United States. And um, unfortunately for the, for the, for the um, really persistent uh, editors of my law review article, ended up being a 120-page study in and of itself already. So I stuck with that question. And I found that if you're talking about a matter of discretion or um, how significant does the duty have to be, also based some on, on Justice Marshall's statements, but also just on thousands of references in the late 18th century to officer and to officers of the United States, that there really didn't have to be any discretionary decision-making authority at all. There were record keeping clerks within agencies who for a very long period of time were considered to be officers. Um, really, probably just because they were carrying out statutory responsibilities that were not necessarily assigned to them, but were just assigned to the executive branch. But that's really what my research 
focused on. Um, I do think there could be more follow-up work on whether the officers of the United States applies to all other officers in every branch. I mean, my initial instinct would be to think that it does. Um, but as I say, there's been a lot of work done on the other side that, um, that raises some interesting questions there. Uh, here in the front row, uh, right there, come to the mic. Wait, the microphone. There's a legislation Commodore. pending in Congress <laughs> which would require states to unionize public employee police and firefighters and EMTs. And if the states don't do it, then it would come under the jurisdiction of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. I, that obviously overrides, for example, Virginia's law prohibiting public employee collective bargaining. Would the anti-commandeering principle that was applied in Murphy prohibit that legislation? Well, the short answer is uh, I'm not sure. I, I do think that there, if, if you look at the uh, overall case law, if you look at cases like um, South, Dakota, South Dakota v. Dole, which dealt with uh, Congress using um, the carrot of federal funding to force states to do something, i.e. raise or their drinking age to 21, uh, the, courts have, the courts have upheld that. We also know that we've seen recent cases, um, the NFIB, NFIB versus uh, Sibelius, um, where the court had said that uh, the way the law was written, it was essentially holding a gun to the states and therefore was unconstitutional. Um, so I, I think it depends. I think it depends on how the statute is written. I think clearly the Murphy case stands for the proposition that um, the, the Supreme Court is willing to limit the power or the ability of the federal government to coerce states. As I said, I think there's other arrows in that quiver, and I'm not sure how far they'll go with Murphy and the anti-commandeering principle. Um, but I do think the courts, it, if Congress clearly expresses uh, in a statute that this is what they want to do, they're not giving discretion to uh, the executive and they're making contingent, for example, on federal funding, then, you know, that may pass constitutional muster. So I think, I think it just it depends on what Congress, what they do with the law. In the back there, the blue shirt, uh, I can see. Uh, in the case involving special prosecutors and independent counsels, there's a great deal of talk about principal officer versus non-principal officer and whether or not that has an impact on the constitutionality of the act or there was a lot of discussion. I just wanted to know what you had to say about that. Um. Yes, so I think the question of the distinction between principal versus inferior officers is obviously another really important one. That also actually is outside, outside the scope of this particular article. Um, I can tell you what the case law is on it. The case law is that Justice Scalia um, in recent years wrote a lot about how um, certainly if you do not have a supervisor between you and the president, you seem to be a principal officer. There's... Um, an opening in the way that you reconcile the case law to also think that even if you do have a supervisor, you might do sufficiently important things that you would also be um, a principal officer. And just to explain to everybody else, a principal officer under the case law is somebody who'd have to be appointed by the president with Senate consent. It's only inferior officers 
um, who have some layer between themselves and the president who can be um, appointed in one of these alternative with one of the alternative mechanisms like appointment by the president alone, head of department or a court of law. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that, so that's the case law. G Professor Gary Lawson's written a lot about this, and he, he actually uh, thinks that the um, category of principal officer might be significantly broader than what we think it is in current case law. Um, so um, I, I think also that could be another question that, um, that is researched. But I, I think certainly um, under my originalist research, most, many, many, many people in the um, federal government would be inferior officers and subject to at least a portion of the appointments clause requirements. Uh, and lady in the back there. Uh This question, oh, I'm sorry. This question is about Murphy, but it's for Joe. Um, <laughs> uh, Thank Joe, you. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, do you think that uh, the, it was suggested earlier that maybe Murphy uh, imposes some limits on Congress's power to preempt state taxation? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. We'll see. Oh, come That's on. the real man. answer. Yeah. <laughs> come on. I mean, really? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we will see, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that's what the court intended in the case. Um, if the hard question, of course, will be who gets to tax this activity and in what amount. And uh, I mean, that's playing out now as states begin to legalize it. Uh, I don't think it will, in effect, limit states. Question in the back there, microphones. Can I, I, can I actually, can I add one thing to that? I, I do think that, it, and I'm not a law professor or a, I don't work at a think tank anymore, but I, but I do think that you could make an argument there's a distinction that even Justice Alito, if, if, if you're trying to weave all this together in the Murphy case, where, you know, he kept talking about um, uh, laws that, that the Constitution is designed to protect individuals, and this anti-commandeering provisions are designed to stop the states from doing things to protect individuals. So you could make an argument that theoretically when Congress passes a law saying the states cannot tax something or regulate something, they're protecting individuals, and so therefore it would somehow fall outside of that anti-commandeering provision if you were going to make that argument. You lost me. Uh, take, uh, assume Congress passes a law. So. <laughs> In the back? Hi, this question is for Professor Mascot mainly. Um, my name is Michael Granito. I'm an attorney uh, with a federal government agency. And um, you mentioned that the SEC has decided, I think it was 200 cases would need to be re-adjudicated after Lucia. Yes, and it might it might actually be that, uh, that that a few of those were actually still in the process and hadn't been adjudicated yet. But uh, yes, it, at some point need to be um, need to be presided over properly. Yes. Okay. Well, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the criteria they use because, uh, if I recall, in the oral arguments in Lucia, this was a major concern, particularly if the definition had expanded to other agencies, much as the executive order you mentioned says that it does. For example, in the uh, Social Security Administration, I believe 80% or more of the federal administrative law judges reside within that administration. And there was a major concern if this applies to them and those appointments for past adjudications were invalid. This could create a huge problem for re-adjudication of, of um, past cases. So I'm wondering what uh, limiting principles there might be for that. 
So I think one limiting principle, you know, in the SEC's application of this is they only applied their um, their correction to cases that could still possibly be, I think, reheard within the agency or were on direct appeal. Um, the other limiting principle is 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 that. What's interesting is some administrative law judges within certain agencies have actually been being constitutionally selected. What's interesting is that there is a statute that gives um, agencies the power to appoint administrative law judges. Now, under the case law, if it's an agency nestled within a larger department, the head of that agency may not be a department head for appointments clause purposes, so that could cause trouble. Or sometimes, like the SEC had just sort of decided without issuing apparently a, a strong legal order that it was just going to delegate its appointments authority to staff. And so in those agencies, there would be a problem. But, um, but there are a number of agencies that had been properly appointing the ALJs to begin with by, by, a, by a department head. Second, um, a number of agencies quite long before the SEC decided to take this action went ahead and ratified the earlier appointments of the administrative law judges. And so I think those agencies may also be on more solid ground. In fact, it's, it's somewhat perplexing looking back why the SEC would not have made that decision earlier, perhaps because the litigation had been going on for so long it did not want to be undercutting its own argument. But um, it was sort of late to the party in terms of the commissioners coming back and ratifying appointments, which is why Mr. Lucia, there was not really even a question there because when the judge had, when Judge Elliott had presided over his case, there wasn't even this ratification order on the book. So I think because of that, there are not as many agencies that are affected. Devin, here. My uh, question has to do with the uh, kind of future effects of Wayfair. Now that they've made that decision, um, do you see that websites will stop asking where their customers are before they have a sale? Or will that be uh, sufficient uh, to have, say, um, where the package will be sent before the sale and still perhaps not qualify under due process clause and not have to collect taxation? Yeah, it's a good question. So... Uh Generally, the current rule will now be that uh, when you buy something online, you have to pay, you, the company will have to collect the sales tax from where you, the customer, are located. Um, and incidentally, that, that system destination-based taxation is, the, is how sales taxes are collected the worldwide. There's really no other way to collect a sales tax. Um, the uh, danger would be that if... Uh, Well, if we went to a different type of system, uh, which, uh, you know, a lot of people want to move to, uh, potentially move to a different type of system, uh, that might be different. Sorry. What was the last part of your question? Um, my question has to do with the due process clause. Now that oh, right, yes. they can't go around the commerce clause. And, Whether they would ask on the website, And they yes. decide that they want to kind of put on the blinders and not know where their customers are until they have uh, a sale right. to and not direct their commerce towards any state and not have to then collect. Yeah, taxes. I apologize for that. Um, that really doesn't save you because you still have to ship the item to somebody, and so you have to collect that information. Um, That's possible. I'm sorry? If purely digital items. A purely and, digital and item. If you're not used with paying with an address, it's possible to make yourself blind. Yeah, so that, and that honestly right now requires federal legislation to resolve. Uh, the example I always use is, you know, say I'm uh, 
flying somewhere and I'm changing planes in Chicago and I download uh, uh, something onto my uh, Kindle. And uh, as far as tax purposes go, it's my residence in D.C. where I'm paying the tax, but I'm actually using it somewhere else, uh, either in Chicago or where I, wherever I ended up reading it, where, uh, wherever I happen to be. Uh, the server that provided the app, is, uh, the, the item that I purchased is probably located somewhere else, like Nebraska, and then, of course, uh, Amazon's located in Washington State. So what state gets to tax that item? Uh, under current law, all of them do, um, and that's a big problem. And uh, federal law really ought to address this. Uh, the courts are going to have a tough time with it because it's not really, uh, as far as due process goes, all of those states have due process authority, due process jurisdiction over the sale. Um, I think that may be one of the next challenges in this. Other future challenges are uh, marketplaces. So eBay and Etsy, are they sellers or are they clearing houses for sellers? And who has the responsibility to collect the tax? Um, no, I mean, th these are all the next lawsuits associated with this. And I think you would have had it regardless of whether the standard was changed or not, because physical presence had all sorts of uh, different problems with it. Ilya, in the front here. Question for Mark, and uh, I'm relaying this actually from uh, Tim Sandifer, uh, Vice President of the Goldwater Institute, so I'm sure you know him well. Uh, and it's a question on federalism uh, and ICWA, the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, um, who asks, uh, given your, your strong defense of federalism, uh, why do you also support ICWA or oppose reforms to it? Uh, given that it's a federal law that uh, intrudes on the authority of state officials with regard to children who are eligible for Indian tribal membership who do not live on reservations and deprive state authorities of the power to protect these children from abuse and neglect. Um, this is obviously off the murky, Murphy subject, but as the Attorney General, we are involved in all sorts of litigation. Our office right now is actually uh, defending uh, a state statute, and there's a federal statute as well, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which uh, deals with preferences given to uh, Native American children when it comes to um, adoptions. Um, the Goldwater Institute is suing. Um, and I don't think I'm misrepresenting Tim's position on essentially equal protection grounds. Um, my, I've always said, as the attorney general of the state, my job is to defend the law as it is, not as I want it to be, um, and I'm not a policymaker. And so that means that there are times when, for example, I went into court um, defending the state's minimum wage law. It doesn't mean that I wanted or a I understand the policy arguments maybe against minimum wage and, and the impacts it may have, but my job is to defend the law as it is because I think as the attorney general, um, you have to do that. I'm not a policymaker. If people don't like the policies, they can change the legislature, they can change the governor, they can vote on a different member of Congress. In Arizona, like a lot of other Western states, we have an initiative process where you can change the law and the Constitution via the initiative process, um, even the referendum process if you don't like a law. And so I, I think that um, there's a deep philosophical reason why I feel like I have to defend the law as it is because eventually if you have attorneys general that decide that they're going to pick and choose which laws they're going to defend or not defend, I think that undermines the rule of law. And so I think that you have to have someone in government that's pretty consistent on that. Uh, the second thing is, um, I do think that 
because we're in litigation and we've already won at the district court on this on this issue, um, I, I do think that uh, when it comes to issues dealing dealing with, for example, the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, it is important to consider the policy ramifications. And this isn't a conference or a discussion on that case, uh, but I will say that if you look at historically what happened to the Native Americans in our country, um, it is, it's different. Um, you know, they were an indigenous population. Uh, it was a policy of the United States government to um, essentially, essentially gauge a genocide. They were given blankets with smallpox. The, they tried to destroy the buffalo in order to destroy their way of life. They were forced onto reservations. In fact, in Arizona and Phoenix, there's a school called, a road, one of the main roads called Indian School. And the reason why it's called Indian schools because there was an Indian school there where they would literally take tribal kids off the reservation and force them into um, Anglo schools, um, cut their hair, wouldn't let them speak their native languages. And so as a result of all of this history, um, governments, including state and the federal government, have made policy preferences where they want to help out um, Native Americans and the indigenous population. Now, so as I said, I think it, there's there's two reasons why we're in court defending that. And um, I do think that um, this probably isn't the best place to have a conversation on ICWA, but I appreciate Tim's question and um, I'll see him in court. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, you're in the back on the right. Thank you. Uh, this is for uh, Professor Bishop Hinchman. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, are we going to also see cities starting to try to collect sales taxes uh, on sales to their residents? And are we going to see uh, states try to collect sales taxes that uh, on businesses that come from outside the the U.S., for example. I mean, I, I'm not sure that those have anything to do with the interstate commerce clause, but as an economist, I'm kind of interested because they would have significant economic implications, I think. Yeah, it's a good question, and not a professor, so I'll put that out there. Uh, um, yeah, but... Um, uh, under constitutional law, cities are creatures of states uh, and under just, just how we look at them. Um, so while, while the federal government and states are kind of uh, not quite co-equal, co but uh, we treat them separately, cities are in, and counties and townships and all the various iterations uh, are essentially cre uh, created by the state governments, can be dissolved by state governments, only have those powers that are given to them by state governments. Um, so to the extent cities have the authority to collect sales tax, it's because a state gave it to them. And um, it is a, an important issue. There are over 10,000 sales tax jurisdictions in the United States and under many of these, uh, and, and they're collected. Um, so if you sell something in Texas, uh, you have to collect not only the Texas sales tax, but the over 1,000 local sales taxes in that state. And it's something that, brick-and-mortar retailers are able to do, and, uh, and now online retailers, uh, those that haven't already, now have to do it. Now, that said, it was a big concern of the court, uh, and it's a big concern of anybody that works in this area to make sure that it not be overly burdensome and that it not harm interstate commerce and then it not punish the small guys. Um, so that's why Justice Kennedy spent, you know, half page of his argument saying states can't impose this tax unless they resolve this problem. And I think it was a big reason why Quill went the way it did and Bellis-Hess went the way it did is because states hadn't resolved this problem. And, you know, I mentioned the federal uh, Congress outlined a potential solution to it back in the 1960s and has never acted on it and to this day has never acted on it. Um, so we kind of have to rely on the states 
solving this on their own for the moment. Um, unless, uh, but now they have. Now we as taxpayers have a weapon in the Wayfair decision uh, because it says this is something states do need to solve before they can collect, uh, and that and that accounts for the cities as well. Uh, two states we're really worried about are Colorado and Louisiana. Those are states where not only do they have local sales tax rates, but they also have local sales tax bases. So what is taxed under the sales tax is different for the local taxes than for the state taxes. And they also have separate administration. So like in Louisiana, it's, it's like merry old England where the, the sheriff, uh, each sheriff for each parish collects the local tax. There is no central collection point for it. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think if Louisiana were to move forward with collection right now, it'd be unconstitutional. Interesting. Here in the front. Hi, uh, Professor Mascot. Uh, Christopher Holliman, Administrative Judge at the Small Business Administration. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I'm, I issue final agency decisions, but I'm classed as an employee under the statute. And I'm not appointed by the head of the agency, but by the head of the office. Have we got a problem? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, so certainly, so my, my big study was on the original meaning of the appointments clause. I mean, certainly I think under the original meaning, yes. I mean, under the Lucia decision, the Lucia decision, as you know, was drawn very narrowly. Um, the court really almost wanted to be very clear not to tip its hand either direction to say the special trial judges, the ALJs, almost are exactly identical. Justice Kagan even asked about this in oral argument. And the court very clearly seemed to me to give instructions to the lower courts, though now don't read this opinion as saying every factor present here has to be present in the future. We just don't know what the minimal threshold is. I mean, I, there are scholars who believe that there are administrative judges who, under the opinion, seem more like officers even than ALJs because of the final decision-making factor. The court does not think that factor's incredibly relevant. Um, so, and the court also comes up with ways to distinguish and compare cases. But I, I would expect if, if someone wanted to, what they would try to say is, you know, look to see how closely administrative judges are presiding over a formal type proceeding and try to draw um, comparisons that way. Um, so it, it might be litigation people pursue in the future. My sense is it's more likely that the um, next level challenges are going to be to ALJs on the removal side, however, if I had to guess. All right, I'm going to wrap that up there. We only have a few seconds left. We're going to do a quick changeover to the next panel. I will quickly change from moderator to panelist. Um, I also have a smart trip, a senior smart trip card that was found outside on the floor. If you were missing this, I will give it to the registration desk if you find out that you can't get back on the metro. Please join me in uh, thanking our panelists. Thank you.